coming up this week off screen. Katniss reaches the end in The Hunger Games Mockingjay Part 2. We get a new vision of Steve McQueen in The Man and La Man. Gaspar Noe unleashes his love upon us. We step into the ring with Mr. Calzaghi. Kate Winslet is the dressmaker. And Michael Ely is the perfect guy. Almost come and more off screen. This is. This is off screen. With the latest film news and reviews, this is Offscreen, the on-screen radio show. Welcome to Offscreen. I'm Van Connor. My name is Case Allen. So, shall we? Uh, shall we start with? Uh, is it the dressmaker we're going to start with this week? Then? It is indeed. Yeah, this is Kate Winslet. So, Kate Winslet, the dressmaker, which is uh, based on apparently quite a popular novel, and uh, this stars Kate Winslet as a uh, a woman who, in her childhood, was sort of cast out of her town, cast into exile from her small Australian town after having been accused of murder. She now returns years later, looking like Kate Winslet. As, as you do. That's what happens with all murderers. This happens yeah. with all murderers. All murderers turn up looking like Kate Winslet after 30 years uh, <laughs> and looking for some revenge through the medium of dressmaking. Uh, that makes no sense it, to me. Well, you know what? Need for speed. I'm going to avenge my friend by winning a race. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, so Kate Winslet sets about uh, changing the lives of everyone in the town which ostracised her by becoming the fashionista of this well, kind of backwards rural Australian town. And this is set in the 50s, by the way. And, uh, well, for better or worse, the town will never be the same again. Here is a clip, and I want to preface this by saying this is a clip of Liam Hemsworth being measured for a dress, measured for a suit, not a dress. Uh, very different film. Although uh, Hugo Weaving does get measured for dresses several times. I'm uh, sold. This is Liam Hemsworth <laughs> getting measured for a wedding suit by uh, Kate Winslet and her mother, Judy Davis. And, of course, the central gag of this is that he's stripping in the background. Here's the clip. She tells them if they want it done proper, they've got to strip and be measured because it's a work of art made special for them and no one else. You see, Tilly, I do listen. She tells them that they're all different, even though they're all the same. Too fat, too skinny. You'll be a sight for sore eyes. Anyway, lo and behold, our genius here does make them look different, less like themselves and more like they want to be, don't you? You just called me Tilly. When? Just then. Yes, you did. And this morning? Twice. Oh, liar. Sounds like this is the most important piece of clothing I'll ever own. So, as you can imagine, Liam Hansel stripping has a bit of a muting effect. So, imagine if uh, if his brother was there, if Chris Hamza was there. Now, it's funny you bring that up because, um, right. I never actually, I'm, I never quite bought into the idea of uh, Liam Hemsworth as as a movie star. No, me neither. He um, always seems like who who is Alec Baldwin's brother, Billy. Billy Baldwin. He it. seems like Billy Baldwin. He, is, he does seem to me to be the 21st century version of this decade's William Baldwin. Yeah. Um, no, no more, no more. He's not now. Now he's uh, he's firmly got some lead mm. lead actor charisma. He's got some star charisma. That's cool. Good on him. Good on him. Good, on yeah, him. good for him. Um, in the meanwhile, you've got Kate Winslet who reminds you. Of once and for all, why she is a star. This, <laughs> this is the sort of project could be handcrafted for Kate Winslet. Yeah. Uh, it, it's got uh, a sort of sultry, sinful, siren-like kind of a quality, um, which see, she juxtaposes, juxtaposes yeah. nicely with this sort of fragile and broken woman, but again at the same time kind of steely and determined. And it's a really, really great Kate Winslet role, and you sort of forget that she's done things like Divergent in the last couple of years. <laughs> yeah. I think she's trying to forget that as well. Exactly. And then you've got uh, Judy Davis as well, who's just all grime and grump mm. and just so much fun to behold. And I like Judy Davis. I, I, I liked Judy Davis since 1993 when I saw her in The Ref with Dennis Leary. And uh, which, if you've never. Do you remember the film? Do you remember is the that. Film? That's the. Uh, Kevin Spacey? Yes. Yeah. Which is Kevin Spacey. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. great. Yeah. Fantastic film. Uh, and then, of course, you've got Hugo Weaving, who I, I can only describe him as delightful. It's the best <laughs> way I can say it. He's simply delightful in this film. It's the best way you can you can say it. He's so much fun in this. He's so lovable in this film. And uh, well, he, it, it harkens a little bit back to his Priscilla Queen of the Desert days. If you've oh, followed following yeah. the implication there without uh, going into... Although it's not really much of a spoiler. It's I like that film, man. I like yeah. Priscilla. Um, so in the meanwhile, uh, you've got a really enjoyable script. It's uh, co-written by with the uh, 
PJ PJ Hogan did uh, name rings about oh, Muriel's Wedding. Okay, did cool. Muriel's Wedding. The director of Muriel's Wedding, mm. who's uh, written this with uh, Jocelyn Morehouse, uh, his wife, who is also the director. And now she's directed it with re- with a really great eye for the visuals of it. It's a really stark, barren landscape, but it doesn't get in the way of the fact that it is a really, really funny film. I have actually been quoted as saying it will keep you in stitches, which of a film named The Dressmaker is a really, really awful pun. Probably you are so proud of it, aren't you? I'm terribly unproud of that, actually. <laughs> So, uh, should we uh, should we look at some film news for the week? And, yeah, let's and, do it. And see what we've got in the meanwhile. What, what do you have for us? We've got to talk about Charlie Lyne and his Kickstarter mm. project. It's, oh, this is genius. This you, is genius. You just told me about this about half an hour ago. So, we've got... Uh, he, basically, the BBFC charge filmmakers £100 to submit their films for review. You can't release them unless they're uh, rated by the BBFC. Cost a hundred pound to submit your film, and then seven pounds per minute of footage of your film. So if you've got a ninety-minute film, it's ninety times seven. He has decided the time has come for payback. Since they have to legally watch every minute of footage, he has started a Kickstarter thing uh, to fund the creation of Paint Drying, a film that will become a minute longer for every seven pounds donated through Kickstarter. At present, this is eight and a half hours long. This was as of last night. So, at the, so as it stands at present, the BBFC and their judges will have to sit in cinema conditions for eight and a half hours watching paint dry. This is to teach them a lesson about overcharging indie filmmakers. It's great, isn't it? It is great. Are you tempted to donate? <laughs> well, yeah. I'm going to look on it right now. I, I, I <laughs> I'm think so. But there's a video on the Kickstarter page that has, or it actually shows you his footage of the paint drying and everything like that. <laughs> and it's really good. Charlie Lynn, incidentally, Charlie Lyne, Charlie Lynn, he uh, directed Beyond Clueless uh, earlier this year, which I, I really liked, actually, at the time. I saw it at Dogfest mm. last year. But uh, really enjoyable film. Uh, so it's on Kickstarter. The story is actually on the uh, on-screen site. So go and have a look. It is something. I think it's going to be an interesting piece of performance art, which doesn't involve Shia LaBeouf. Okay, so you've checked, mm. and it's apparently uh, nine hours and twelve minutes at present. This is going to be the length of Pain Drag. Yeah, it okay. is. So shall we uh, shall we crack on with the the top ten then for this, week? or at least ten through six? We'll do ten through six first. Number ten. Bradley Cooper in Burnt. Which I keep saying, I liked more than I expected to. It is disposable, frothy fun. Mm. It, it, it's not a, it's not like going out for fine dining. It's more like having a Nando's. Best way to describe it. It is unchallenging, uncomplicated, simplistic, you know, kitchen-based dramedy with Bradley Cooper, who's actually tolerable in it. And, and going back a little bit more to his sort of comedic roots, because obviously mm. he did this on telly. He did this on telly, Yeah, years ago. But Daniel Brühl's in it, and he's very, very enjoyable. Number nine. Kyle Mulligan in Suffragettes. Did you see Suffragettes? Uh, no, but my fiance Cassie has. She did enjoy it. She did. She did say it was like watching an ITV drama. <laughs> Fair enough. So, I think it's a good one. Quite, quite, quite a high level. Yeah, ITV, but a yeah. high concept. Yeah. yeah. Actually, no. She's not wrong. Actually, I think this is more. She's more sort of a BBC One Sunday night drama though. Okay. But, yeah. Uh, I think let's go higher brow. Than <laughs> yeah. ITV. Like an Inspector Calls level. Of, yeah, yeah. Let's go with like that. Call the midwife kind of a thing. <laughs> yeah. It's called the Midwife BBC. I have no idea. That is Beeb, yeah. It is Beeb, yes, because they did Strictly recently. Mm. So I, I know everything about the Beeb through marketing and nothing else. Really? Uh, but I like Suffragette and I, I like Kerry Mulligan's performance in it mm. and Hannibal Carter's as well. And uh, I particularly like the direction and the cinematography of it. Number eight. The Martian. He's still there. He's still there. It's his soul. What is it now? Which, want, which soul? 1,700. Because I've been reading the book and I found out mm. that the soul is actually 24 hours and 30 minutes. Oh. So a sol is only 30 minutes longer than an Earth day. Yeah. So I wanted to actually do the math and get really cocky and See turn around and say, well, actually, Case, I think you'll find it's sol 409. <laughs> you, can, you can do that for next week. We'll do, do it next, next week. week. Yeah. We'll, we'll do it next week. Work but on. the film's amazing. What more mm. can we say? I think we both had such a good time with it. Yeah, we have just... Uh, yeah, we loved it. Man. We've run out of expletives and, and adjectives. It's and great. With us got probably get an Oscar for the first time. I hope yeah. so. And, and Sean Bean calls people a bloody, bloody coward. coward yeah. yeah, bloody coward. And uh, and Drew Goddard's script is is a lot of fun, and I like Matt Damon very much in it. Number seven. Okay, let's do this uh, one together on the count of three. One, two, three. Nipsey. <laughs> Good old Pan. Oh, uh, it's terrible. It really is, isn't it? it yeah. it's just so bad. I mean, the first ten minutes on the first ten minutes are great. Yeah, I think I think that's fair. To say. It, it works really well, and then he gets to Neverland, and then he gets to Neverland, and it's 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 
what you could generously describe as crap. <laughs> that is being generous. That is being generous because, and we keep saying this, everybody's in a different film here. Mm. Everyone <clears throat> seems to, th- I think everyone thinks that they are the comedic breakout role or they are the central figure and they're not. And Garrett Hedlund, you are not the lead. Mm. And Hugh Jackman, you are not the Jack Sparrow. And Rooney Mara, oh. this is not your story. And Levi Miller, we're sorry you're in this, mate. We, why, why are you talking to an LED? Exactly. We're really sorry. You you carry on talking to your little LED Tinkerbell. That's fine. Number six. Brooklyn. I've heard good things about this. You've not caught this one, then? No, not yet. Well, this is, I, I think, one of the one of the big surprises of the last few weeks. This is uh, mm. Saoirse Ronan. We said the big surprise for you and I was it was written by Nick Hornby. That is a big surprise. And, he, and his script is very, very good. It's very insightful. It's perfectly gauged to balance the character, the sort of character writing and the actual story itself. And the story is one of... I mean, the story harkens back to that sort of Catherine Cookson-style <laughs> style novel that Housewives used to enjoy so much, but it's played in such a, a sort of gloriously cinematic way. I mean, there, there are moments in which, it's in, uh, in the transition from uh, Ireland to Brooklyn, for instance, where you remind a lot of Titanic, of all things, because it's Irish people on a boat in, <laughs> you know, in a period piece setting, you can't help it, but Saoirse Ronan is so good in it. And uh, Donald Gleeson, because I've got oh, your, you got I've got it. your you got pronunciation, it right. Donald Gleeson. <laughs> I like him very, very much in it. And uh, Julie Walters as well. I, I had a lot of fun with it. I thought it was a, a really great, really compelling film. Should we have a bit of film news then to oh, yes, uh, tie us yeah. over to, uh, to the next one? Mm. Because, say, so we've got some interesting ones this week. Um, mm. They're assembling a think tank for a G.I. Joe cinematic universe. That's a, Does it need any thought? At all. Did any of the G.I. Joe things have any thoughts? No. I don't know. Uh, it's something called Micronauts as well. I'm not sure what that is. I don't know what that is. They've cast the Baywatch girl in the meanwhile. Have you heard this? Yeah. Alexandra Daddario, mm. which is kind of yeah. creepy, seeing as she recently played Dwayne Johnson's daughter, daughter in San Andreas. But she's she's, she's not going to be the romantic lead for him. She's going to be the romantic lead for Zephron. Z- Zephron? Zephron. Zephron. Oh, I like that. We yeah. could call, call him Zephron. Because yeah. it's, it's far too hard to say Zach Efron. Very so, true. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, one last piece then before we, before we get on to the next review then. Apparently, Paramount have an option to keep Rebecca Ferguson around for the next Mission Impossible. Keep her. And they are. Well, why wouldn't they? She's she's a bit of a breakout star out of this. I mean, that, that kind of sucks. That means that she might not be Miss Marvel. That would, yeah, I can live with it. I can live with, with it. it. I, I want Ronda Rousey or uh, Emily Blunt or... Uh, I think Emily Blunt is my fan's choice. Yvonne Strahovski is my choice, actually. Ooh, Yvonne Strahovski, I really like to see. But the most important part about uh, Mission Impossible 6 yeah. is that Christopher McQuarrie is going to write and direct <clears> it. How awesome is that? That is the first time yeah, in the first, history. Yeah, somebody's the come first back. first returning director. Yeah. So shall we uh, shall we look at uh, look at love next? Let's look at love. Let's let yeah. let's bask in the glow of Gaspar Noé's love, which is actually entitled Love on 3D. Love on 3D. Love yeah. Ian on 3D. On. Yes. Oh yeah, of course, because um, he's he's French. Yeah, actually, he's Argentinian. Oh, is he really? He's actually well, Argentinian. Egg but, in my face. But he yeah. may as well be French. Actually, this is a Parisian set. Uh, I want to say love story, but not really. Uh, this is more like a study of a relationship. What you have is you have um, you have a young man played oh, whose name I forget actually offhand, uh, and basically he. In the present day, he is in a sort of loveless relationship with a woman with whom he has fathered a child. Uh, he's unhappy. He discovers that his former girlfriend, whom he left for his current partner, has gone missing. He's not seen her in some time. And he starts to reminisce about their relationship and what it was that caused them to uh, to, to drift apart. Um, spoiler alert, the child would work in that category. Um, this is all shot, of course, in 3D. And the marketing shtick... For it is that it contains a number of excessively gratuitous sex scenes. Nevertheless, we have a clip that doesn't involve one of those scenes. I want to point out beforehand, though, I have removed half of the silence from this clip. So, given the clip is almost entirely silent, that gives you an idea of what you're encountering. This is only half of the silence. What's wrong? Mommy's pregnant. Oh, Miss Pregnant? Whoa! Of who? Of who? Casper Noe's love, everybody! <laughs> <laughs> so, <Nice>. uh, yeah. <laughs> 
This is, I mean, don't get me wrong, as far as Gaspar Noé's work goes, this is probably the most personal <clears throat> sort of project he's done, the most mm. sort of soul-bearing exercise he's come up with. Um, and it is sort of insightful, it does attempt to sort of, you know, uh, walk the entire pantheon of the of the, the relationship sort of field. I mean, it covers literally everything you can imagine. It does seem a little bit sort of scared in places, which is kind of odd given the sort of sexual gratuity of it. Um there is a, uh, a sort of there's a, a a moment where it seems to go into a same sex sort of region where it bizarrely cowers away and you just think that was the last taboo you had, Gasper. Really, the last taboo, and you couldn't manage that. You might as well take. Why take nine out of ten boxes? And just leave that last one. Why leave that? Mm. You said that if you're going to take nine out of ten boxes, <laughs> at least go for the tenth and score the perfect game. You know, I say um, it's going to be remembered most. You know, like Tangerine is going to be remembered as the iPhone movie. This is going to be remembered as the 3D porno, basically. Mm. And that's the problem because the sex is really distracting from the story. I mean, this film literally opens with a really stark, sort of emotionless sex scene, and I mean, literally opens. Opens with it's in no, no setup, not even a fade in, just hard Straight cut, on. hard hard cut, mm. static shot, and we're there for five minutes in three D. Really, it, yes. a static shot, just static shot, really, and and that seems to be how he likes his sex scenes to be filmed. He's trying to re- he tries to remove, I think, the emotion. The only thing he wants in his sex scenes is pure lust, not emotion. And the problem is that the rest of the movie is about love and the sex scenes aren't and the sex scenes make up about 50% of the film <laughs> and to put it this way if if you know going in that this is a 3D movie that involves gratuitous sex there is a certain shot that you know is coming no pun intended and <laughs> I think you spell it out there yeah and yeah you do get it in spades and uh, it, it will stay with you the problem is that those sex scenes do take away from what is otherwise a really interesting and insightful film. It does kind of leave the narrative hanging towards the end, and the final scene is inadvertently funny. I mean, there's a sequence between the lead and his and his his child, which is a little bit funny when it shouldn't be. But other than that, you know what? It's it's not what you expect. It is far more insightful than than what you would come to expect. So should we uh, should we have another bit of filming before we yeah, okay, on the let's next do it. one? Have you heard about Bad Santa too? Have. This is this is a great yeah. one. So Kathy Bates has been cast as, and I love the name of the character as well. Sunny Soak. Sunny Soak. Her name <laughs> is Sunny Soak. I love that. Oh. Uh, so Kathy Bates is going to be the mother of the of Bad Santa. She's going to be Billy Bob oh, Thornton's cool. mother. Uh, let's see what else we've got. Oh, Ben Wheatley, who's a director. Yeah. He's a. I think he's a love or hate him director. I think. Ben I Wheatley. definitely love him. I'm not really sold on him to You're be not? honest. Um, he is going. He's entered talks to write and direct a remake mm. of The Wages of Fear, okay. which most of us I think know through Sorcerer, the uh, William Friedkin movie with mm. uh, Roy Scheider. Although you know, when you sit and look at the plot, I can't help but think. You may also know it as Chill Factor, starring Cuba Gooding Jr. and Skeet Ulrich, <laughs> which is pretty much that exact movie. Hey, man, do you remember when Skeet Ulrich was in films? Yeah, remember those days? Yeah. My God, the 90s were a trying time. <laughs> so, from Skeet Ulrich onto The Perfect Guy. Should that is such a segue. Such a segue, <laughs> isn't it? So, The Perfect Guy, which is... Uh, I mean, stop me if you've heard this before. Um, girl wants to, you know, get married and career woman wants to get married and settle down. Her boyfriend isn't ready to commit. She moves on, leaves the relationship, then meets the perfect guy. However, no sooner has she introduced said perfect guy to her parents, and he's mm-hmm. he is the greatest guy ever, than it emerges he has something of a temper. Where do you think this will go? Maybe our clip will shed some light on this. You're upset, that's all. That's all, we'll, we'll get through it together. Carter. Do you? Do you love me? I'm not sure. You know? I, I don't, I don't, I don't know anything anymore. You don't know anything anymore. You don't know. I'm not one of your campaigns where some damn poll numbers don't add up. This is a relationship. This is a relationship. The perfect guy, ladies and gentlemen. So Michael Ely is, of course, said perfect guy. Sarnel mm. Lathan is the, uh, you know, pseudo-bunny-boiling career woman. And Morris Chestnut is the commitment-phobic ex-boyfriend. Which seems to be all Morris Chestnut's good for now. Yeah. When did this happen? 
after Kickass Two. <laughs> I, <think so. laughs> I feel really bad for Morris Chestnut. He's I a like better him. actor than he any is. of the work he gets. Oh, uh, I saw him in the call. Do you remember that? Oh yes. Uh. You know what I always remember about Morris Chestnut though? <laughs> I remember he was the villain in the Steven Seagal Jar Rule vehicle, half past dead. Which has a sequel. Not sure how. <laughs> what is the title of that? Half Past Dead 2. I guess so. Well, shouldn't it be Quarter to quarter, Dead? Quarter to Dead, yeah. Quarter to Dead. No, Half Past Dead. Quarter to Second Dead. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't we'll, know. we'll work on that we'll before we that. do the treatment. We, will, we yeah. will work on that. So this is the latest in the sort of uh, diminished psycho, psycho suburban thriller subgenre. You can take this all the way back to things like... Uh, Unlawful Entry, Pacific Heights, Sleeping with the Enemy, and of course Fatal Attraction. And there is a little bit of Fatal Attraction in this, there's a little bit of Sleeping with the Enemy, those two specifically. But this seems to owe more of a debt than anything to um, that Idris Elba vehicle from last year. Remember uh, No Good Deed? I do remember that. Which was the same kind of thing, which is let's take a really tired, cliched thriller from the 80s and 90s, and what we'll do is we'll recast it to aim it at the the uncatered for African-American audience, because studios tend to have this weird idea that this is a cinema-going minority. They, they They don't really sell these films. And then, of course, the films open huge, and the studios act surprised. Hmm. Because for some reason they don't consider that there are a lot of African American people who go to the cinema. Who, who knew this? But so what we've got is this again. This is actually, believe it or not, nowhere near as good as No Good Deeds. <laughs> and No Good Deed was pretty poor. That was rock bottom. That was, that was rock terrible. bottom. Actually, no, I did think rock bottom was uh, the boy next door, which was this year's one with Jennifer Lopez. Uh, this that is, is somehow worse. Oh, I just thought of another one. There was another. A film with Idris Elba and Beyonce. What is it called? It's similar. Yes, I know. Is the it one. Obsessed? obsessed. Obsessed with Ali Lata. Yeah. In which you're thinking, yeah, you'd leave Beyonce for Ali Lata. Just saying, in the context mm. of that film, you totally would. <laughs> right. Um, to say that Michael Ely is better than this film is accurate but unfair because literally everybody involved is better than this film. <laughs> this film has some of the worst dialogue. The you know that you could. <laughs> Have you got any examples? For this? Oh, oh, oh! No. On 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 a first day, sorry when he first meets the girl and he's trying to charm her, he genuinely <clears throat> says, and I've got this written down somewhere I take great pleasure in I, I take great satisfaction from making people feel safe and secure he uses that as a pickup line genuinely so uh, <laughs> ev- everyone involved well, is better than the material guy. The, the script which is by a first time writer whose name I forget is absolutely dreadful I think the studio will forget oh, no it's not my first time writer it's by Tiger Williams who wrote Menace to Society so, yeah, the first time writer was uh, Fathers and Daughters last week. That's what I'm thinking. Oh, right, okay. Um, you've then got David M. Rosenthal uh, directing this, which is just shameful. And then you've got the worst score of the year. And I do mean worst. This is a relentless score. It's a bad score anyway, but it never lets up. It's on you. Can't it? It's just always there. The score just does not drown out for mm. a second. But the most patient man in the world would be sat there in his chair, squirming, just silently begging. Just rocking back and forth. I can only describe it as a, as a barrage of noise. You've ever wondered what it would feel like to fall asleep in the service elevator of Greetings Card Factory? This is, oh, I'm, I'm picturing that. This yeah. is just like really bad like synth strings. Oh, God, yeah. It's yeah. so, so bad. Um, <laughs> it's just not any good. It is trite. It is rubbish. It is predictable. It is cloy. It is nauseatingly drippy. It is everything you have come to hate about predictable direct-to-DVD cinema and worse. And the fact that it's been sort of given this, this oh, let's aim it at the, uh, the uncatered for African-American market, is woefully patronising. It really is, and you can't help but think, really, Michael Ely? You had so much potential. You, you, you're an up-and-comer. Did what? you, did you see the the robot series he did with Carl Urban? That was oh, that was that, that, that only got like one season. That was as well. one season, and it was fantastic. Oh, and he's so good in it, mm. and he was great in um, <clears throat> Think Like a Man and About Last Night. No. He, he deserved what better he than done? this. We as a society owed him better than this. So he, he is not the perfect guy. He's not the perfect guy. He's a decent actor who's been let down by an awful movie. Perfect guy, awful movie. But that, that, that's the better, best way to Better title. Be- better title. <laughs> so, oh, have you heard about um, 100 Years? I have not heard about 100 Years. Ooh, you're going to love this. You're right, okay. Set it up for me. John Malkovich. I'm in. John Malkovich and Robert Rodriguez have, what? Co- have, collaborated, no, they have collaborated on a film together, right? In association oh my God. with Louis the Thirteenth Cognac, 
which is eight, which is aged for a hundred years. Right, this might be the greatest cross promotion you've Absolutely. ever heard because Louis XIII cognac is you know uh, brewed for a hundred years. Mm. Brewed is that the thing? Made of uh, well, yeah, fermented, fermented, over, fermented yeah, sure, for a hundred yeah. years. They have created a film called One Hundred Years: The Movie You Will Never See, that is going to be sealed with instructions to only be opened in the year twenty one fifteen. That's bonkers. That is absolutely insane. Isn't I, mean, I, I love it. I think it's fantastic. <laughs> I do. I don't know if the human race is still going to be here in a hundred years. Oh, what are you doing, Mark Chess? That is incredible. It's just like, really, is anyone going to know who Robert Rodriguez is? You know, this means in a hundred years, historians are going to be like, we found this time capsule. A hundred years. Oh no, it's got Sun City 2. Throw it away. <laughs> Robert Rodriguez. What is this, Spy Kids? <laughs> what? 4D? <laughs> Scratch and smell vision <laughs> Who on earth is Jeremy Piven? With the latest film news and reviews, this is Offscreen. And we're back. So do you think uh, John Cusack ever ever wonders, who is this Jeremy Piven? I who used to he? know him. I used to know him. I don't anymore. Ten years, man. Ten years. <laughs> <laughs> he used to return my calls. Yeah. Anyway, so should we crack on with uh, The Hunger Games Mockingjay Part 2? It's over. Which it is over. I, actually, in my notes, I do write it as Hunger Games Three B, but uh, <laughs> right. So this obviously picks up literally seconds after the end of the last uh, instalment, in which Peter had been rescued, but he's brainwashed, and he believes Katniss oh, yeah. is the root of all evil. So now we have uh, the final offensive, effectively, in which um, Katniss must basically unite the, the the various districts of the to overthrow the totalitarian regime of the capital, mm. overseen by the devious President Snow, played by Donald Sutherland. But as the offensive goes forward and she encroaches further and further into the capital, she begins to suspect that Snow may not be the ultimate villain after all, and she may face threats from all sides. Here's a clip. You saw Peter, didn't you? Did you tell him hi for me? We're old friends, you know. We had adjoining cells in the capital. We're very familiar with each other's screams. I'm going to kill Snow. Nothing good is safe while he's alive. And I can't make another speech about it. Now you're talking. So Jenna Malone and Jennifer Lawrence. J- Jenna Malone and Jennifer Lawrence. Yes. Yeah, I thought I said Jennifer Malone. <laughs> Jenna Malone and Jennifer Lawrence there. And, uh, well, it, it, like we said, I mean, it's over now. This mm. is the end. Or is it? Because there's been a lot of stuff in the uh, news recently. Uh, oh, the franchise can carry on past this. And you're like, don't. Please don't. Yeah. Because the story's been it, told. It's, it's a contained well, story. Narrative's done. Yeah. And, you know, you, you do get that uh, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows ending to this one as well. And uh, I do mean literally the Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows mm. ending you get to this. Um, so the problem I have with the film really is, I'm glad it's over. And it, it does sort of satisfy on a we have wrapped up the plot threads sort of level. The problem is this is a film, and this may go back to the, the source material, this is a film which constantly promises big moments but then sort of wimps out on them and, and mm. gives you really haphazard, almost off-screen sort of a, you know events instead. And you're yeah. like, really, I wanted more than that. And then you get to other, not big moments, but sort of big narrative moments, not big events, but big sort of story points, mm. and they're very predictable and very trite, and the ultimate sort of ending for Snow is really phoned in. You, you've seen this going back decades in cinema, and the problem as well is the film is miserable. It is a miserably toned film. I mean, Katniss Evergreen may be the single most joyless character you've ever seen on a cinema screen. Uh, I gave Divergent a lot of stick for having a female, you know, an empowered female lead who simply existed to cry and let the boys do everything. The only difference between Divergent and <coughs> Hunger Games this time around is their empowered female lead cries but then does things alongside the boys. And those boys are woefully underserved. Everyone is underserved in this. Yeah. Um, There's so many characters in it. It's oh, when you get a franchise yeah. of a side and you've you've got to try and do service to all of them, people just get left, don't they? That's it's it. They keep the adding more characters as well. So you get, uh, for instance, the likes of Natalie Dormer in there. You're like, why yeah. ain't yeah. Michelle Forbes turns up. Mm. Michelle Forbes turns up. Oh yeah, Michelle, and then she sort of uh, Foggy Nelson from Daredevil. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. really, all these people 
And no. And it's, Liam Hemsworth is pretty much there just to say um over and over again because that seems to be all. Oh, did you do this? Um, that's his answer to everything is um. You've got Josh Hutcherson who is. <laughs> I mean, you you could literally could stick a wet flannel on a stick and get the same performance you get from Josh. But just like CGI, some personality. You really could. The only two with any personality in the film are, ironically, the two characters who are meant to be overthrown for being evil. Well, it's not really surprising they're in positions of power. They're the only ones with any charisma. If you put them in a democratic election, they're the ones who'd win. (laughs) It is, like I say, Francis Lawrence, though, has some chops, and he does manage to wring some good material out of it. There is a sewer sequence in this, which is a little bit derivative of the last Maze Runner movie, has some zombie type creatures in it but you do find yourself thinking actually you know if you gave him a good cinematographer you could get a half decent alien sequel out of him get him the guy from Buried exactly yeah because that's my answer to everything and that's our weekly (laughs) (laughs) but yeah Francis Lawrence actually could turn out a fairly decent alien sequel the problem is he evidently can't turn out a decent Hunger Games sequel the series is over and you will be glad it's over and I would imagine I I have been told this is is, uh, a friend of mine did say actually do you know what it's very much like the book I went yeah I've heard that that's not really a justification though for the fact that it's a miserable film you know, that it's but if it's a miserable material. book, I went, because they change things in Marvel comics all you know, when they make the movies all the time, mm. and we don't sort of moan about it because it's for the sake of making an entertaining film. Exactly, so, it's for the sake of the tone. It's for the sake of yeah. making an entertaining and fulfilling film. Simply to churning out this absolute snorefest of an ending, and it really is a snorefest. I mean, there, there are, there's a tagline for the film, which is "Nothing can prepare you for the end." And you think this is quite clearly a marketing slogan dreamt up by an ad exec who doesn't own a pillow. <laughs> and that, that's really the long and short of it. You could snooze through this very, very easily. I mean, it clocks it just over two hours. And boy, do you feel it. You really do feel it. it. It's, I would say it's directionless, but the whole film seems to involve walking from point A to point B. So it has a direction. It just takes its damn time getting there. That's over at least. So, shall we? Uh, shall we look at? Oh, actually, speaking of Hemsworths, we'll have a look at uh, Chris. What's Chris up to? What is Chris up to? Well, Chris, it seems, Chris Hemsworth, Thor himself, <laughs> aka the Huntsman, aka the Alec Baldwin of Hemsworths. That's the Hemsworth you want to be. Isn't That's it? the Hemsworth you, you want to be. Alec. You want to be the Alec of the Hemsworths. Well, he is apparently the new Alan Quartermain. Yeah, I heard about this. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. So uh, apparently, cool. Sony are looking at this as a franchise. That'll be, be a much better franchise than this Huntsman business. Very much so, uh, I, I don't disagree. Although, you know, I think it would be a better Alan Quartermain adventure than the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, let's put it that way. Uh, Memento, we've got to talk about Memento. Oh, of this course. Is, this is heartbreaking. Isn't it? Memento is getting a remake, because uh, AMBI Films have bought the library to which it belongs. Which, why? They released a statement about it saying why they were going to make it, and we ended it with, we think we can uh, make a film that has the same level of uh, just great Great, like, I don't know, um, uh, cinematography, integrity. <laughs> right. Just, yeah, okay. why, why are you saying that? And then he said, we want to make it an awards-worthy picture. That's just like, you're making this just for awards. Just, yeah, you really yeah. are. Uh, one final bit, then, uh, before we go on. Um, Anthony McCartan, who wrote The Theory of Everything, a.k.a. the best film ever, apparently, if you believe the Oscars. You know, it gave us the uh, the Eddie Redmayne Award for uh, best redmaining in an Eddie Redmayne film. <laughs> But uh, yeah, the writer of the theory of everything. <laughs> Poor Michael Keaton. Poor Michael Keaton. I know. I felt so bad for him. So, did you see that picture of when Eddie Redman goes up for of, of him getting his speech? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw the picture. Yeah, oh, Michael my, my, my heart's broken too. I know you feel for him, don't you? Poor Birdman. Mm. Come on, he, he was worth more than that. But uh, yeah, so the writer of the theory of everything has become the latest writer to board the Freddie Mercury biopic. Mm. This is the film that should never happen because apparently Queen don't want it to be any good. They'd rather have a PG family-friendly film. Yeah, and instead of having Sasha Baron which is yeah. spot on, top-notch casting. Yeah, and he wanted a gritty R-rated tell-all film, and you sit and think. Which would Freddie Mercury have wanted? And I'm pretty sure Freddie Mercury would have wanted the R-rated. He would have wanted the warts and all, darling. He, he wanted warts and all. He, that's exactly how he would have said, "I want yeah. warts and all, darling." Warts yeah. and all. <laughs> Except he would have dropped an F-bomb in there because apparently that was his favourite thing in the world. Yeah, but we can't because we're a family show. <laughs> we're a family-friendly show. So, uh, real quick review then, uh, Mr. Calzaghi, which is a documentary about Joe Calzaghi, the heavyweight boxer, sorry, southpaw boxer, and uh, well, his rise to fame. Um, 
Well, there's really not much more to say than that. This is basically a documentary all about his rise and rise to fame, what he did to stay stay successful, his training regime, etc. Here's a clip. Joe had his own style. He was a southpaw, obviously, so and very adept and very athletic. But he had a father who was not classically trained as an amateur boxer, but he'd been in the musical world, playing in a band. He's got that energy about him. But what he did was he transferred a lot of musical movement into Joe throwing five, six, and seven punch combinations. Right, this is very much as, as sort of cut and dry as you would think it is. It's a standard 90-minute, oh, he comes from this part of Wales, but he's a, he's a bit Italian, and he grew up, and oh, he's bullied at school, and they trained box. Oh, and he's really close to his dad, and here's his sisters and his sons, and uh, oh, here's, here's when he fought Chris Eubank, and uh, I, this should be on HBO between two you know broadcast between two fights this is effectively mm. a dvd bonus extra <laughs> just like a featurette, a you know, if, you bought, featurette. if you bought a dvd boxer of the best of joe Kalzaki, <laughs> you know of all his fights in one box set yeah. you would expect this to be like the bonus disc mm. and that's what it feels like throughout because there's nothing really insightful to it he didn't really overcome any great adversity he was just he was a fighter you know he was kind of good and then he stopped and that's the story. Okay then. So, on the plus side, I know more about Joe Calzaghe than I did before, but the only reason I didn't before was because I didn't care to. He's not really a particularly appealing guy, and the film doesn't really sell him as, you know, any further as anything more really. It's one if you like Joe Calzaghe, if you're interested in in the sport, if you want to know what go on, watch it by all means, but I don't think you're really going to learn much more than you already would if you were a fan. So, eh, as you will. So, uh, what else have we got then? Oh, Matthew McConaughey has been offered both the lead mm. and the villain of the Dark Tower adaptation. Now, this is one of those projects that I'll believe when I see it, because supposedly we've had a Dark Tower movie for coming for 15 years. Yeah, Ron Howard has been attached to it for I don't know how long. Probably since when he left Happy Days. I think it's been since Ben. About them. Yeah. Oh, Val Kilmer. We're going to talk about Val Kilmer. Because I don't know if this is real or not. <laughs> Did you not see his post? No, no I saw his, his post. post. Oh, okay. But is it real? I can't I don't tell. think it is. Apparently he's now clarified his comments by... I've not read the full clarification. Mark Gilbert put a post out on Facebook, I believe, yes. um, that he'd been offered a role in Top Gun 2, which was going to star Gene Hackman alongside Tom Cruise, and Jay Bruckheim is involved, but it's going to be directed by Francis Ford Coppola. <laughs> I just love the way that he phrased it as well. It was like, Tom Cruise? Yes. Gene Hackman? Yes. <laughs> Francis Ford Coppola? <laughs> okay, I think, I think it's safe to say Val Kilmer is trolling us. Hmm. And, uh, well, he's Val Kilmer. What else has he got to do? <laughs> uh, my favourite other thing on Tumblr I've ever seen, there was a post uh, called Fat Batman, and it was loads oh. of people of fat guys dressed like Batman. When you scroll right down, and then it's Val Kilmer just eating a croissant. <laughs> <laughs> there is a meme that's, hey, kids, remember when I was Batman? Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a shame, because he was a perfectly fine Batman. He I was, in better than George Clooney. Yeah, well, I think Clooney was, was a victim to the material more mm. than anything that's else. True, that's true. Should we finish the top ten then, Case? Yes. Right. Number five. Right, this makes me so, so bloody sad. Steve Jobs, new oh. entry. See, it's, for both of us, this is sad. We both love this film. <clears throat> I do think it's a, it's, it's a powerful, rousing character drama. Rather than... It, it's something different from the old biopic uh, genre. and Well, genre, subgenre. But uh, terrific performances. Fantastic scripts. It's a war of words unfolding on it screen. Is, yeah. uh, you've got Danny Boyle, who even in even in a sort of distanced capacity... It's solid. St- yeah, still manages to keep it tight, Compact, solid. You've got a range of terrific performances in the likes of Kate Winslet, Seth Rogen, uh, Fastbender, obviously, particularly, mm. and of course Michael Stolberg, who mm. we are quite enamoured with. We at the are, moment. Yeah, certainly. But uh, I say, and I think the MVP though is Aaron Sorkin. Number four, Rem Rattan Dan Payo. Can we just safely say that this was not press screened and I have not seen it? So let's say that. Let's say. Number three, Hotel Transylvania Two. <laughs> have you had the pleasure yet? No, I'm just going to wait till Netflix, because every week I keep saying I'm going to see it on Sunday, but then something always happens on Sunday, so 
I'll, I'll say it in a couple of months. It's, it's one of those. If you like the first one, you'll like the second one. If you don't, you don't. You won't. Then uh, I think it's no, it, it's that uh, meet the parent, meet the Focker style inversion of the formula. Dracula's gone from being the overprotective parent to being the reckless grandparent. And you know what? There's there's the same sort of degree of last, the same uh, macabre sense of sensibility, sense of humour. Uh, the cast are clearly enjoying themselves. <laughs> I didn't notice that Keegan Michael Key would replaced Silo. Uh, but uh, it is fun. Yeah. By the way, um, you mentioned about Celo. He turned up on the X Factor after we had that conversation. Oh, did he? <laughs> Dressed in flowers to blend into a flower wall. Well, well that's, that's what you want from Celo Green. It is. That and a, a Begin Again sequel. Number two. The Lady in the Van, a new entry. Which I really liked. I really loved it. I thought Alan Bennett's script was really sort of sincere and considered funny mm. and heartwarming and a little bit sort of moving at times. Uh, Maggie Smith does what Maggie Smith does so well. Alex Jennings plays a brilliant Alan Bennett. <laughs> well, both versions of him because we get to see his, his psyche mm. as two different people. And you've got a supporting cast, which is the likes of like Roger Allen and Jim Broadbent. And it's, it's, it is possibly the most British film ever made. Yeah. <laughs> but that's not a bad thing. It's, not it's at all. Yeah. really solidly enjoyable. I really liked it. Number one. And he's still up, uh, Mr. Bond, Spectre. Well, I had the pleasure of seeing Spectre again this, this last week. And I don't think it stands up to a second viewing, which is... Mm. Kind of concerning because I don't think it stood up to a first. But uh, the problem with, with Spectre is it's a, it's a disappointment anyway after the dizzying highs of Skyfall. Mm. And I don't think it's, it really... It can't sustain the momentum that Skyfall had because you were so invested with, with the characters in Skyfall that with Spectre, you're really not. There is no... Despite the fact that you've got this villain who supposedly comes from Bond's past, it's amazing how detached everyone involved Bond himself seems... And you're like, well, really? And it, it's all over the shop. Some bits are, are overlong and bloated and prolonged, and other yeah. bits are just rushed. It's it, a race it does manage to feel rushed and then just... Like and rushed and laboured at the same yeah. time. How? Yeah. That's a skill in itself. That so. is a skill. Yeah. And then you get to the uh, the very the third act, and you're just like, wow, we are racing to the finish line with this one. And by the time you're given a three minute count, you're like, uh, okay, fair enough. I mean, the third act, which seems to be ripped entirely from Rogue Nation of all things, yeah, which is annoying. It's an infinitely better spy movie though. We, it, Rogue Nation is infinitely yeah. better, and of course, it had Alec Baldwin, which automatically <laughs> makes a film better but... unless they get him like to be the next Bond. Oh my get, god! Get, Bol- get his character from Mission Impossible to be Bond twenty five. As long as he answers a phone in that brilliant Mission Impossible way, Bond. <laughs> but uh, no, I think it does provide a strong narrative closure to the Daniel Craig era, and I would, I would, I would personally prefer if this was the end of the Daniel Craig era. I wouldn't consider it a bad era. I wouldn't consider it the worst, but. I think it's done. I think it's had its day. Can we move on and have something a bit more traditionally Bond now? With something of a more traditional actual Bond himself. So a bit of film news then before we crack on with the, the next review. So, oh, we got to talk about Edgar Wright. Edgar Wright mm. has a new animated project over at DreamWorks. Yeah. Have you heard who he's replacing? No, I have not, actually. Oh. DreamWorks... Sock to me. Yeah, DreamWorks pulled a project from their 2017 release slate. A project that was an animated movie called Me and My Shadow. Oh, I heard about this. And was going to feature the talents of Bill Hader and mm. Josh Gad. Mm. Now, that's now been pulled. Edgar Wright is producing a shadow-based animated <laughs> tale, which he's going to co-write with David Walliams instead. Final review of the week then, Mr. Allen. So, shall we uh, shall we look at Steve McQueen? Let's look at Steve McQueen. So, Steve McQueen, The Man and Le Man. This is uh, sort of... This is a weird one. This is half biopic, half making of documentary. So, what this basically entails is this is a look at Steve McQueen's 1971 racing film, Le Man, which was something of a passion project for him. But as well, it also looked at his life, sort of his how he sort of came up to Le Man, and basically what went on behind the scenes and after. I mean, the film literally begins with his death and then sort of flashes back. But the marketing shtick for it is, for the production of this film, they have uncovered the previously, I want to say hidden or lost, uh, more like exiled footage from the film, because the film was such a disaster that despite the fact that over a million feet of film were shot for it, Said film was put in a bunker and had the key tossed away. <laughs> but we have a clip. When the flower children came along, everything changed. Everything changed. 
he was almost 40. There was suddenly free sex and free love and free this and free everything. He said to me one day, he said, I have to work so hard for love in this house. He said, I can get it for free out there. His conquest of women behind his wife's back probably averaged about a dozen women a week. It was a little less than two a day. They wanted to say, I had sex with Steve McQueen. The thing with Le Mans is Le Mans is remembered in racing circles as probably the definitive movie on the subject. Mm. It is, uh, it's a film which features very, very little dialogue, but it's all about verisimilitude. It's all about grit and reality. And Steve McQueen himself, being quite a passionate racer in reality, was, of course, I'm going to get in there. No other actors. No, we get actual racers to do it. So go and get, get a guy from Porsche and Ferrari in, and we will make we'll a film. Those guys. And this went millions over budget, and the director, the director quit halfway through, and they got a Another guy in who Steve McQueen hated and um, <clears throat> said nasty things to on the very first day. It was a bit of a mess. It was a bit of a mess. Um, now, the clip that we just played, obviously, that, that highlights one of the key attributes, but it highlights one of the aspects of the film, which is that Steve McQueen himself, behind the scenes, carried on pretty much as he liked, going through two women a day, or, two, or a dozen a week, sort of a thing. Um, this is directed by John McKenna and Gabriel Clark, and what they've tried to do is they've tried to put forward an argument that um, Le Mans had more of an effect on McQueen, sort of professionally and personally, than we have come to expect. The film was something of a flop, but McQueen suffered briefly and then went on to uh, the run of The Getaway, The Towering Inferno, Thomas Crown Affair, films like that. Yeah. Um, he basically became a sort of star for hire after that. Rather than the sort of icon he wanted to be, Le Mans broke that, dis dismantled his empire, and then made him into sort of a for-the-paycheck star, as it were, which is basically how he ended his career. Because mm. you know, he died in, what, about 1881? Something like that. Um, so we are told about the man himself, but the problem is everyone is everyone interviewed is very, very eager to talk about the disaster that was the film. And they want to talk about McQueen, but they seem to restrain themselves a little bit on the McQueen front. They will talk about, oh yeah, he liked his women. Like, really? Because that clip is about all the, all the acknowledgement that that gets. And supposedly it's such a big part of his personality that it seems very odd to me. It's like that film uh, Listen to Me, Marlon, recently mm. that came out. That did a very similar thing where it glossed over Marlon Brando and women. I mean, Really? It's so one of the first things I think of when I think of Marlon yeah. Brando. And That's drinking. Steve, exactly. You think drinking and women and food third. Yeah. But, uh, but uh, Michael Jackson fourth. But uh, with, with Steve McQueen, you do tend to think that's a man who loved three things. Smoking, scotch and women. Racing as well. It's in but, the top five. It's in the top five. But this is the problem. The film wants to make the case that, you know, oh, it broke McQueen. The film does tell us time and time again that McQueen didn't attend the premiere of the film and he gave up racing professionally after the film's conclusion. But it never really goes into much of an attempt to explain why. It kind of just tells you these things without context. There is a very nice sort of sort of segue into the story of a driver who lost his leg in an accident whilst filming because it highlights the sort of danger of racing at the time. But frankly, I got more out of watching Rush as far as a race, I was going to say, like, there are definitely some. Yeah, I got more of a rush than I yeah. did from this. And it did add a new level to Le Mans as a film for me. I want to go mm. back and rewatch Le Mans it. now. But it really isn't successful enough, I think, in making the case it wants to make about the links between the man and Le Mans. And that for me is a problem because it's literally the title. Yeah. yeah. So we're going to have to give the film of the week to something. What are so. you thinking? Oh, I'm thinking... The perfect dress guy? No, no, Dressmaker. Dressmaker. Not a perfect guy. Perfect guy, terrible, terrible movie. <laughs> Sorry, worst, Neely. Worst film of the week. Worst film of the week, definitely. I mean, this is a, a guy outdone by Love. I mean, yeah. Love was a better film than The Perfect Guy. But uh, no, I like The Dressmaker very much. It's a film I actually want to watch again. You'd watch it again. But I just want to watch it for Hugo Weaving. He's, like, Hugo Weaving in a dress? What more do you he's, need? he's delightful. That should have been the poster. <laughs> Literally, if you put Hugo Weaving in a dress on the poster, The Dressmaker. You get like the Marvel floating heads thing. And then in the centre, <laughs> you get Elrond in a dress. Is, is that the statement now? The Marvel floating heads Yes, yeah, so that's it. So we should do a couple of plugs. So we've got, of course, we've got the quiz to plug. Mm, yeah. Which is your creation. It is my is creation. It is indeed. 
Indeed. We have the first monthly on-screen film quiz, the November film quiz. Yeah. You can go on onscreenfilm.com, and it's on the front page in the feature section, or just go in the feature section in general. It's on there, 25 questions to test your cinematic metal, as concocted by Mr. Case Allen. Are you proud of your work? Uh, I am. It's good to be doing this again. Because yeah. you've done a quiz in, what, about a year? Uh, yeah, my last quiz was about a year ago. I used to run the uh, Cineworld uh, film quiz. I had a, quite a bit of fun doing it. <laughs> you yeah. did? I was there almost every time. You were, you were indeed. It is, I will say this, it is nice to have a quiz where I know that people aren't going to be shouting things back at me that I've done wrong. Oh, sorry yeah. about that case. Oh, can, can, we, can we hear that question again, please? <laughs> sorry about that case. But no, it, it was good. I hope that people enjoy the Showgirls! <laughs> the answer Showgirls! <laughs> The answer was Showgirls for one. I think what one of them it was. Um, my answer um, like the, the like last last quizzes I did, I did a special Showgirls question. <laughs> we appreciate that. Yeah. Of course, one of the staples of our monthly quiz. It is going to be monthly. We're doing it a is, December yeah. one. We'll do, we'll do presumably an end of year one as well. Yeah. Uh, and of course, every quiz will feature a token Nicolas Cage question. Of course, because that is the trademark of Mr. Allen here. <laughs> we have also got our competitions to plug as well. You can go on onscreenfilm.com, go in the competition section, and the next in this next week we've got some interesting ones to go up. We're giving we away. Special reissued for Christmas Paddington DVDs. Ooh, yeah. okay. We've also got copies of Ant Man to give away. Oh, I'm very, very fantastic. happy about that. It's the yeah. first time we've run. I know we've run Marvel DVD competitions before. We did an Age, Age of Ultron one. I think we did. We did an Age of Ultron one. It's because for years they wouldn't do them, and mm. then all of a sudden they've started. But uh, yeah, so Ant Man. We've got Ant Man to give away on the site this next week. Great film. So go on, check it out. We loved Ant Man. Yeah. Both of us. We so. were talking about it earlier in the show. We were, in fact. <laughs> So, we've got next week, we've got some interesting ones next week. We've got uh, Johnny Depp in Black Mass mm. to look forward to. We've got My Skinny Sister, which I know nothing about. Know uh, Unbranded, which again I know nothing about. Uh, Carol, which is... Uh, it's Todd Haynes, it's Kate yeah, Blanchett, Blanchett Rooney Mara. Rooney Mara as well. Mara, Fair yeah. enough. We've got uh, Being AP, documentary about the horse mm-hmm. racer. We've got uh, ooh, Bridge of Spies. Yeah. Bit of Spielberg, bit of Hanks, Touch of Cold War. <laughs> What yes, could please. go wrong? <laughs> and of course, Pixar are back. And when is that not a reason to celebrate? The good mm. dinosaur. Two Pixar films in one year. Great year. That's a good year, yeah. isn't it? Two <laughs> Pixar films, one year. The first one was already great. I wonder how if, if this is good, that's just gravy. That's it. This only has to be good. Yeah. For it to be <laughs> by Pixar standards, this just has to be good. Yeah. So, just be better than Cars Two, and I'll be fine. Yeah, that's it. Just, just, just be Cars. Or for yeah. me, I, I'm not a fan of Ratatouille, so. Really? I'm not, I'm not a Ratatouille fan. I, I'm if it's better fan. than Cars 2, though, I would call that... Yeah, that, 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 that's, that's a win. Yeah. So, this has been a Candy Store production for On Screen. I've been Van Connor. My name is Case Allen. And we'll be back next week. Just show me the way to get out of here, and I'll be on my way. You've been listening to Off Screen. For more news and reviews, visit onscreenfilm.com. 